0: Hey, friends, this is Ashley coming to you before this episode starts. I just wanted to let you all know that I have a newsletter. It's also called Boss Barista, and you can find all of our episodes along with full transcripts and articles about each episode at the newsletter. So go to bossbarista.substack.com, and all of this stuff will just end up in your email. It's kind of like magic. So again, bossbarista.substack.com to find all of these episodes along with additional content. Thanks for listening and on to the show. Hey friends, welcome to Boss Barista, the podcast about workplace equity and employee empowerment in coffee and beyond. I'm Ashley Rodriguez. If you've been with Boss Barista for a long time, you've heard me talk about today's guest, Carla Boza of Finca San Antonio Montepec. She's a third-generation coffee farmer who works in El Salvador and who I met by chance. We happened to sit next to each other at a coffee conference a couple of years ago. Carla's coffee story is also one of chance. After being told that her father's coffee wasn't good enough to sell a specialty, specialty coffee often garnering much more money than commodity coffee, she happened to be in an event and sit next to a coffee taster who had tasted her family's coffee and said that the coffee was excellent. This comment put her on a path to discover that the buyer that they'd been working with had been marketing their family farm entirely differently than they had been led to believe, using her father's image to sell their coffee as a single origin offering. Now she's working on a master's degree to uncover how farmers can enter the specialty market and understand the value of their coffee. I first interviewed Carla in July of 2019, and this episode almost picks up right where we left off in our first discussion. You don't need to listen to that first episode to understand what we're talking about, but it's helpful. In this episode, we talk about the granular effects of climate change on coffee farms and ask big questions like, what makes a coffee special? What qualifies anything as specialty? Is it specialty if the target keeps moving? A lot this and more in this episode. Here's Carla. Carla, I was wondering if you could start by introducing yourself.
1: Yes, of course. So my name is Carla Bosa, and I am a coffee farmer at Finca San Antonio, Amatepec. And I am based in El Salvador.
0: So you've been on the show before. And I'd like to almost like pick up where we left off in the last episode, where you talked about your family's farm and how you got into coffee growing and a lot of the hurdles that your family faced. You were told that your coffee wasn't good, only to find out later that it was much better than you were initially led to believe. And now we're here. You're in graduate school studying some of the issues that you laid out in that first episode. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the research you're doing right now.
1: Yes, of course. So a little bit about my research. So I am doing my my master's right now. It's a master's in geography at Virginia Tech. So I got this incredible opportunity to do my master's through being a TA and What I really wanted to look into were the different barriers that farmers encounter when they want to make the transition from only selling commercial coffee into the specialty field. So what this was based on was sort of our own experience as a coffee farm. So a little bit of background on that is that my family, we've been in coffee for a few generations now. And my dad, he's had the same coffee farm since 1969. And up until maybe a few years ago, he had never tasted his coffee. He had never done a coffee. He was always being told by importers and exporters that the quality of his coffee wasn't great. And it wasn't until we were certified at the time by Rainforest Alliance, they do a breakfast every year at Expo, and we sent some samples to them, and that's when We first cupped it and they told us, you know, like, actually your coffee is pretty good. It's specialty grade. You should come to this specialty coffee event in Atlanta. It was that year. So we went to Atlanta. We happened to sit next to the coffee cupper who had cupped our coffee and she told us a little bit about it. And we're like, oh my God, you know, like our coffee is actually pretty good. And then that led me to go online, do a basic Google search searching, you know, like Finca San Antonio Matepec, searching for Carlo Bosa, who's my dad. And a few things popped up and I was really surprised how our coffee was already being sold directly to roasters as a single origin. So then that sort of like started this questioning in my mind of what does it take, what is like the traditional route for farmers to take if they want to make this transition. So the way that we did it was very particular in the sense that we needed a lot of things to happen by accident almost so then we needed like this little accident where we like you know like all of our coffee used to go to the experter, but then this one time we saved a little bit we processed it at home and then we sent the samples we had never sent samples before so it was like all of these like little barriers that we had to overcome which we did purely for for fun mostly, like for the certification, you know, which ultimately led us to realizing the quality of our coffee and looking for clients and selling our coffee directly to them instead of selling it only to these exporters. So then that is something that I wanted to sort of look into through my research, like how does this happen in a more organized or organic way, I guess.
0: Right, right. It's interesting that you mentioned the particular set of circumstances that led you down this pathway. Like I'm even thinking about you sitting next to the cupper who cupped your coffee. Like imagine if you had sat at different tables.
1: Exactly. Like everything would have been completely different. Or what happens if I wouldn't have had that curiosity of doing a Google Mm -hmm. search? That is something so simple.
0: Right. The idea that you even like took time to say, wait, hold on. If someone's saying this, like maybe let me just find out more about like how my my family's coffee is being sold and seeing it sold for way more like exposure or way more clout than like you were being told like the assumption being that like you would never look almost
1: and what's even worse about all of this is that this story that happened to us it's not even that uncommon like this is the most traditional basic standard coffee story out there for coffee farmers where a lot of us don't really know the quality of our coffee because we've never been told if it's like good or bad and we've never really like been able to figure out these things on our own I guess we've been always been guided by what like importers and exporters are telling us
0: I think hearing that you might be like, wait, how do you not know that your coffee is good? But there's a lot of factors as to why that is. Number one, tastes are often dictated by quote unquote consuming countries for for better or for worse, whatever Mm -hmm. that means. Um, But two, and I think that we'll probably delve into this a little bit, is there's not a lot of educational resources on farms. So the metrics that we use to quantify quality aren't being taught two farmers.
1: Exactly. So for my research, what I did is that I interviewed a lot of people in El Salvador mostly. And then I also interviewed other people that were like, I don't know, like industry experts, let's call them. So what producers were telling me here in El Salvador is that one of the main barriers that they faced When trying to make this transition into selling their coffee as specialty, it wasn't necessarily meeting quality standards because most of them already had really good coffee, but what they were missing was education. Like that is something that came up in each and every one of my interviews. Like people mentioned, you know, like we've never been taught or even knew what the process was for cupping coffee or the proper way, I guess, to do like an evaluation of quality You know, like not necessarily like through copying, because what happens a lot of the times, at least here in El Salvador, is that a lot of coffee producers are only coffee producers, like they sell coffee cherry to importers. They don't sell coffee. So what we call coffee cherry here is uvas, we call it grapes. So a lot of coffee producers will describe themselves as uveros, meaning that they sell only the coffee cherry. So what happens and what this looks like on the farm level is that a truck from the importer, your choice, you know, like will come to your farm and will collect all of these sacks full of coffee cherries. So then at this point, we are selling fruit, we are not necessarily selling coffee seeds, you know, so then the fact of it even like being converted into coffees is like that is a whole process that many of us do not have access to. Like, even to this day, we do not have our own milk and we need to rely on a processing partner that will do all of the coffee processing for us. And then we can finally extract the coffee seed and be able to do like a proper cupping. So, then there are all of these limitations, and most of it comes from this process you know like we don't have the facilities or even the the know-how of how to even dry our coffee basically for us to be able to obtain the seed and then ultimately do a cupping
0: it's interesting that you mentioned the way that coffee is often purchased or almost in a way like just like picked up in a in a truck because so much of specialty coffee as we were talking about before is based on quality We base so much of how we determine prices, how we sell coffee on the market on quality, but then on the other end of it, on the producing end, we don't seem to make any sort of investment into assessing quality in a way that's transparent for producers. So like you were saying, a car or a truck comes in, picks up these sacks of... Of, of what they're calling grapes, but there's no talk about, like, is this good? Like, do you know? Like, how do we talk about quality? So I wonder, like, how do we start to bridge that disconnect? I know that you were saying education is one of the ways. Mm-hmm. Did your research uncover any other things that you think are worth talking about or highlighting?
1: The reason that I mentioned education, like, over and over again is because this was the one thing that kept popping up in, like, all of the interviews, like all of the producers said that they were a bit clueless as to, you know, like, okay, like we have our our coffee, but how do we know if it's good, if it's bad? How can we improve quality if it's not at its best, or even if we want to make it better, you know? So I think that at least when it comes to El Salvador, something that is key, to me at least, is that We have a proper institute of coffee. It's called like the Coffee Council of El Salvador. And this coffee council is, lies under the, I guess, like oversight of the Ministry of Agriculture. So it's a government branch that deals with like everything related to coffee. So then Mm -hmm. you would imagine that a coffee institute led by the government in a producing country, would provide these educational opportunities for producers. But the fact is that we only have classes for baristas, for roasters, for cupping, and for brewing, I believe. But there is no courses and classes on processing and how to do like good management practices that are like beneficial for your coffee plants we lack that knowledge that caters specifically and solely like to producers. So then that to me is just unacceptable. And it's just incredible that, that, you know, like we've gotten this far and like, we still don't provide these classes that are so necessary for coffee, because I think that, you know, like El Salvador used to be like such a big coffee producing country, like back in the day. Right now, our numbers have gone way down and what we have been, I guess, like pointing towards is not necessarily quantity, but quality. But we can't have quality if we are not giving producers the educational insights of how to get there and how to even like market their coffee Uh, how to taste their coffee and evaluate the coffee themselves. So it's just like this huge gap that I think we need to like cover or target somehow.
0: But then there's also the incentive of a government being invested in the coffee production of its country. I actually just talked to somebody recently who was telling me about coffee production in the democratic Republic of the Congo. Mm -hmm. And he was saying that there's very little government interest And that has severely affected their ability to import and export coffee. Mm -hmm. So like we see that. We see that government government buy-in is really important. So you're right. It should be from the government.
1: Yeah, it should be. And, you know, the thing is that in El Salvador, because of this strong history that we have associated with coffee, there is even this institute that is dedicated solely to this and we also have so many laws and regulations that limit the way that we talk about coffee and even like market our coffee and sell our coffee in in so many ways so for example one of these limitations that also came up during the interviews was that when it comes to coffee you need to be certified you need to have like a certification for Everything in El Salvador. So then you need to be certified and you need to have like government approval to be a coffee farmer, to be a coffee roaster, to be a coffee importer, to be a coffee exporter, to be a coffee processing facility. So then you need permits for all of these things that as far as I know, you do not need if you are dealing or growing like corn or beans or other things. So then that puts a lot of limitations because for example... And I think that this is something that we have talked about previously in our other call, but like we were trying to sell our coffee directly to a local roaster. And, you know, they were like an entrepreneur, a small business. They were just getting started. They didn't necessarily have all of the permits stating that they could officially be a roaster, but they had all of the equipment and everything. And it was so hard for us to be able to sell them that coffee because since they were not roasters They couldn't legally buy coffee from us. We had to ultimately end up selling it to like someone else who would sell it to them. So then it was just this huge mess. And in between all of that, you know, like everyone wants to make a profit out of all of these transactions. So then instead of it being direct as we wanted it to be, which would have benefited the small roster and it would have benefited us, we couldn't do it that way. So it does have, like, its pros and cons of having these institutions built. But at the same time, I think, like, if you don't keep up with, like, new market trends and with things that are happening, like, now, these institutions can become something that, like, push you back. So another example is that, and I was talking with a barista about this, this year, we did not send anyone to the World Barista Championship because we didn't even have our national competitions. And I asked him about that, and I was like, why didn't it happen? And he was like, oh, the Coffee Institute said that there weren't enough people interested, even though that's not true. And since they hold the license to hold these um, events, we weren't able to send a barista to the World Championship, which I was like, oh, my God, you know, like, I may have... <laughs> many thoughts about these events, but at the end of the day, it's still an opportunity for someone from a producing country to go and like take space in these industry events.
0: Right. Especially this year where there were no people from producing countries in the top six.
1: I know, I know.
0: Just for people who maybe don't know what, what we're talking about. We were talking about the world barista championships that just happened in Melbourne, Maybe like a couple of weeks ago when we're recording, and there are people from like all over the world that go from from a lot of countries this year, the top six competitors, all really strong, all really great people, but none of them were from producing countries, which was which was noticeable, which was stark. So to even hear you t- say like we weren't even able to send someone from El Salvador um, is kind of heartbreaking.
1: I know. And you know, like, I know that baristas locally, that is something that they do look up for. We had a, like a world champion barista here from El Salvador, that was, I don't know, I want to say like 10 years ago or something like that. So you know, like there is that precedent, like still locally in the country of like, we want to send people over there, you know, so they compete, and then maybe they win again, or they like rank really well. I don't know.
0: I want to talk a little bit about The idea of quality, just because it's something that we've talked a lot about when it comes to education Mm
1: -hmm. and how
0: we seem to prize quality on one end of the spectrum, but don't seem to invest in assessing quality on the other. But at the same time, and this is something that you've mentioned in the past, it feels like quality is often a moving target, where at one point, as a farmer, you were told the goal is to grow specialty coffee, like the goal is to grow coffee that scores above an 80, which is, you know, 80 out of 100. This is how coffee is generally assessed on this point system. And then a couple of years later, you might be told something totally different, like, oh, it's actually like has to be like an 84 coffee, or it has to be this. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what what that's meant for you and how the definition of specialty has kind of affected you personally.
1: Yes, so <laughs> yeah, and this that's is... a big question. I was like, <laughs> no. oh, we're, we're getting into it. Yeah, no, and this is something that I have many, many opinions on as well. But basically, when you know, like we started getting involved in the coffee industry, technically the term was like, okay, eighty plus out of the hundred point system, that's specialty coffee, right? So, right. and what year was this? Um, so this was when whenever SCA Expo in Atlanta happened. So this would have been, I
0: think, 2015, I think. Yeah, either
1: like 15 or 16, like either of those. So it was, yes, a few years ago, but it's not that long ago. No, it's not that long ago. Like it's it's pretty recent, basically. And we were, you know, like 80 plus, like that was the mark. And we were like, okay, this is doable. We can do this within like the environment that we're in because something that we're very conscious about at our farm is that where we are is what we have you know so then to give you some insight of what this looks like we are an urban farm basically located in San Salvador so the area where it's located in if anyone wants to like look into this a little bit more it's called San Marcos And just to give you an idea of this, where I live, where I'm taking this call right now from, it's maybe like considered the outskirts of San Salvador, the city, right? The capital of the country. And it takes me around 15 to 20 minutes if there is traffic to get to the gates of the farm in San Marcos. So it's like really close by. And just to give people an idea of how, urban this area has become in recent years is that if you want to get a mcdonald's like a big mac (laughs) for lunch or whatever i don't know it will take you maybe like seven minutes from the gate of the farm to drive to the nearest mcdonald's so it's like it's right there it's super close you can get uber eats delivered to the gates of the farm like it's really urban (laughs) basically is what i'm trying to give the idea of and what this means for us is that the climate around us is not what it used to be like before like it doesn't get as cold as it used to there are a lot less trees because of how urban the area has become a lot of deforestation that has affected our microclimate what we are dealing with in terms of like elevation is also the the gates of the farmer are like 900 meters above sea level the top of the farm is at like a thousand two hundred meters above sea level. We we can't move our farm and take it with us and bring it someplace else. Like it's already there. <laughs> you know, like there are many limiting factors that we can't change in coffee because of where we are located. And all of that ends up impacting our quality. So then when we hear 80 plus it's like okay you know like that's doable we can definitely reach those numbers and we have but then most recently last year i was at a coffee symposium <laughs> that is targeted to coffee professionals in central america it was hosted in el salvador last year so then we had people from all over like central america and mexico come and it was a really like nice event to connect with everyone but then the keynote speaker what he says is that these days, 80 point coffee, like, it's okay, but that's commercially, like, commercial quality these days. What we need to be targeting towards is 86 plus. And I'm like, what? You know, like, that is a six point difference. Like, that is massive in case people aren't, like, who are listening aren't as familiar with, like, coffee scoring. You know, like, a six point difference, that's, like, wild.
0: <laughs> Yeah, let's give people some context for this. We're talking about this like 20 point differential, like between 80 and 100, but coffees do not score in the 90s. I mean, some do, some very rare coffees do. So we're really talking about a 10 point differential in terms of most of the coffee that you're drinking. So six points between 80 and 86 is monumental. Exactly.
1: So, you know, I was like, oh my God, like freaking out. And I was like, what does this mean? And of course I was already thinking of like all of the, issues that come up with changing it from 80 to 86 like that's wild then you know a part of me was like okay like this guy he doesn't really know what he's talking about and i i just decided to ignore him but then (laughs) a few months after that there was an importer that works directly with a lot of like well-known roasters and they came up with this report where they asked roasters about their perceptions of quality and what it means to them and all of these things and in their findings they published that there are three areas for specialty coffee basically so then there are the 80 to 84 mark And that coffee is called like commercial specialty or something like that, they decided to call it. And I was like, "Ah, oh my God, you know, like maybe that guy from the coffee symposium was right. And then they talked about the actual new specialty grade, which is 86 plus. And I'm like, oh my God. But then I was like, wait a minute, what's up with like 85? They skipped it. And what they said was that 85 point coffee is like, this gray area that no one really is interested in because it's too low and it's not good enough. So I was like, they basically said like you're better off selling 84 point coffee than 85 because 85 is just like close, but not good enough to the 86, like the new specialty mark. And that was just wild. So I was like, okay, you know, like it's like there's roasters out there with this mentality and it's been repeated Enough times for it to actually become like the new normative and to be published <laughs> and to become right. like accepted.
0: Right. And I think something that you mentioned, and I want to talk a little bit about this too, is that coffee farming depends so much on climate. It depends so much on the microclimate of your farm. It depends on rain patterns. It depends on terroir. It depends on all these growing factors around you. And the climate is changing. Like, we all know this. And it seems bizarre that we're expecting higher and higher standards for a worsening climate. Yes. And that
1: to me just makes absolutely no sense. Like, I hope that in this day and age (laughs) there are less climate deniers out there than there used to be before but you know like I've I've already weeded
0: out all the climate deniers in like a past (laughs) episode so
1: they're they're gone good 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 but you know it's like I feel like before it became like as normal to talk about these things like if there is a group out there that knows the effects of climate change it's people in agriculture, you know, like regardless of what you grow, whatever you're growing has been affected because of climate change. And that is a reality. And I think that we have been speaking out about this within like other agro circles, you know, like for years. And I think that it's come to the point, at least in our farm, where every year we expect to be hit by massive storms that bring out a lot of it costs a lot of damage in our coffee and you know like that damage can look anything from like actual physical damage to our coffee trees where maybe the trees start absorbing excess quantities of water and that causes the coffee cherry to split open and like spit out basically the the coffee bean which is what we want to end up selling anyways so then it causes that and then it also just like completely devastates our coffee farms because at least what has happened to us a lot these past few years is that it will tear down a lot of our shade trees and our shade trees are really old pine trees for example that are massive in height massive in weight and having that come down and like on our coffee trees it just completely breaks them, ruins them, damages them, and we need to replant them eventually because the damage is so bad that they die.
0: Your farm has lately specifically been affected by tropical storms, and I was wondering if you even have any, like, conception of what that's going to do to harvest this year.
1: Yes. So the way that weather happens and works in El Salvador and why it's supposed to be, like, an ideal country for growing coffee and why it has worked so well in the past is that we have very distinct weather seasons and there's only two of them really. So it's either raining, which is our winter or it's not, which is like our summer basically. And it's split up in two halves of the year. So half of the year it's raining, half of the year it's not. And with coffee that creates like very distinct patterns that it alters the way that the plant grows and stimulates it. So when it's raining, the plant grows, it's healthy, it's thriving, living its best life. But then it stops raining for half of the year, the tree starts to get a little bit stressed. And during this whole time, it's developing the coffee cherries, because it obviously thinks that Because of that lack of water, it's going to die. (laughs) And then the coffee trees, the coffee cherries start maturing. And then you end up picking them up. And then, you know, it's a false alarm. It starts raining again. The plant doesn't die. And it repeats the whole cycle. During the months of like November to March is when it stops raining, when we harvest our coffee. But what happened last year was that during the harvest, it rained during December. And what that meant is that it alerted the plants during December. And it said, like, oh, you know, like, the rain is coming. You need to start creating coffee flowers to restart that whole process. So then it altered that in that a lot of our trees thought that winter was coming. And we had, like, a beautiful coffee flowering. And, you know, like, it was nice because it happened well but it was devastating because it happened during December so then we were still harvesting our coffee we had coffee flowers going on which never happens and never should happen and that was really destructive for the whole cycle of our coffee so then right now even though it's still raining and raining and we're still in our winter we have coffee cherries that are already red and mature and ready to be harvested even though Maybe I want to say like 85% of our coffee trees and our coffee cherries are still green and they won't be ready to harvest until maybe like a month from now. So then that is super damaging because it just alters the whole cycle of all of these trees and that ends up, you know, like affecting your costs ultimately because you need to pull people from doing their day-to-day activities in the farm and into coffee harvesting. And they need to like pick and choose these coffee cherries that are in between the whole farm. And that could even be in between the same coffee plant. So then we do have some plants that had some flowerings in December that cherries and already, but then they also flowered later, like a few months later. So then they have those cherries that are still green that are following like the natural like normal cycle of coffee so then it just alters everything
0: when you say that the plants are flowering does mm-hmm. that what is that what does that mean that the cherries aren't ripening i just want to make sure i'm clear on that
1: yes so what happens is that at the beginning of the year let's say like around april or something like that
0: we usually
1: have a very strong rainfall. And that strong rainfall, rainfall, it indicates to the plant, like, okay, you know, the winter is here and the rainy season is here and it's time to grow and expand. So then if you get like certain amount of millimeters of rainfall, it tells the plant, okay, it's time to like put out the flowers and mm-hmm. maybe like a week after that initial rainfall, you will have the coffee blossoms come up and that starts, you know, like the whole coffee cycle. Once they shrivel up, you will see that like in between there is this like little seed and it will just start growing and growing and growing and plumping up, ultimately becoming a coffee cherry
0: for you to harvest. Wow. That's wild. It's wild to think that there's so much disruption to yeah. these patterns that you really depend on. Cause like you were saying, it's not just about the plants, even though obviously the plants are heavily affected, but it's also like the way that you're able to plan your labor. Exactly. So it just alters
1: the cycle because before the weather was more predictable and the coffee cycle, it's very like set in stone and at least it used to be in like dictated specifically by the rainfall. So then Back in the day, you could have coffee professionals like agronomers who would be like, they could estimate when you would be harvesting by from that initial, initial flowering. So it's almost like, I don't know, like the first thing that comes to mind is like, having a child, you know, like, if you go to a doctor, they'll tell you like, Oh, you will be in labor by like x day, nine months from now. It's the same for coffee. Like, Back in the day, that's how predictable it used to be based on that initial flowering. You would know like, okay, X amount of days and weeks from now, I will be able to harvest this cherry because it will be mature. But these days, that's become so unpredictable because of the rain and because now we have all of these like micro storms happening in the dry season that is just giving false information basically. To the coffee plants of when that winter is coming.
0: Especially when we're talking about this idea of quality and the marker for quality constantly changing, it seems like there's a really big disconnect between understanding the realities of what's happening on coffee farms and the demands from the market. Yeah, I
1: think that there is a huge disconnect and Honestly, I don't know what's the best way to tackle this. Yes, there's been this huge disconnect forever, basically. But I think that right now, the fact that the common discourse around pricing and compensating producers and all of these things revolves around specialty, like, I don't know at what point specialty coffee became this savior for coffee farmers, where farmers were being told, you know, like, If you create coffee that is 80 points and above, you won't have, you know, like, economical problems. You'll be paid rightly for your labor, for your costs, for everything. But then suddenly we are changing all of these standards so quickly and there is no way really for coffee farmers to adapt to all of these changes because it's just happening at a rate that is like, too fast for us to even be able to replant (laughs) coffees you know because we also need to like take into account that for a coffee plant from seed up to a plant for it to be productive and have like a strong harvest it's it can be anywhere from up to like five years you know so that is a lot of time and if in five years we're already changing the standards from 80 points to 86 points there is no way that we can keep up
0: yeah. No, that totally makes sense. And I think that also speaks to the research that you're doing with your masters is that there's this bridge that we have not built, that we seem to be completely okay with farmers kind of like stumbling into specialty. Mm-hmm. Like there's even like, I I feel like there must even be a narrative around, I don't know if you've seen this, but this narrative around like roasters, like discovering mm-hmm. like a farm or something like that. And it's like, this isn't this isn't right. Like, this isn't exactly. the way it should be. And that's what I think is so, like, compelling and interesting about the work that you're doing is that, like, the bridge, the br- we should be able to see the bridge and cross the bridge. Like, we should exactly. be able to, like, even using the story of, like, your farm as an example is that, like, we have this idea that quality is, like, inherent and that we're going to discover these best quality coffees, but, like, we're not. Like, we're just not. And we also are doing ourselves a disservice by moving the target of quality so often mm-hmm. that we're like leaving out so many people and this doesn't diminish the amount of labor that goes into coffee either mm-hmm. like i i can't i i have to imagine like maybe there's some quality differences in like an 88 coffee versus an 86 coffee in terms of mm-hmm. farming but I, I i'm not sure actually i, I have to imagine maybe not Yeah,
1: you know, and when it comes to quality, like, yes, there are factors that definitely affect like where you're growing your coffee, the altitude, the variety that it is like all of these things definitely matter. But at the end of the day, a lot of it is just pure chance and luck. The fact that you got enough rainfall that was not too much, not too little that you had the right amount of shade that year that you had enough income to be able to fertilize properly like that is another huge thing that you know like a lot of people don't talk about is just how the cost of everything at the farm level has gone up because we right. hear how you know like the price of coffee goes up and we're no longer in a price crisis and all of these things but you know if the price of fertilizer which is essential for a coffee farm has almost doubled then what real profits are we talking about
0: is there anything that you want people listening to this to know about the work that you're doing or the realities of coffee farming right now, kind of like big open question for you. Yeah. Um, What's, what's on your mind or what do you want people to leave this conversation knowing or feeling? Yeah. I think that they're
1: just like something that I always try to advocate for is for people to ask questions, you know, like don't feel embarrassed don't feel like because i do know that the coffee industry can be super intimidating at times like there are a lot of like big egos and personalities you know in the way but like don't let that stop you like if you have a question about anything like like ask it you know like don't feel bad about it like there is no bad answer i think that there are so many misconceptions in our industry the only way for us to sort of like build this bridge that we've been talking about is to break down these myths make connections with people and just like keep asking these questions that will ultimately i think will be leading us in a better direction
0: carla thank you so much again for taking time to chat with me every time i chat with you i learn something new and I feel inspired and you're just, you're just a really great person. And I'm glad that you took some time to chat with me. I'm just looking for a better day. Boss Barista is produced by me, Ashley Rodriguez. You can find a transcription of this episode on my newsletter, along with an accompanying article about this episode every Thursday at bossbarista.substack.com. To support the show, you can visit www.patreon.com slash Barista. We have over 80 patrons supporting the show right now, which is incredible. And that helps keep the show alive. We pay guests through this fund, we pay for website hosting, and we make donations. Half of our patron donations are currently pledged to five different nonprofits, each at $50 a month. Asada's Daughters, the Loveland Foundation, the Native American Rights Fund, the Grocery Run Club, and the Chicago Community Bond Fund. Again, if you want to support Boss Barista, consider making a monthly donation at www.patreon.com boss barista. Another amazing way to support the show is to share this episode with just one person, a friend, someone who you think would learn something from this episode, anybody sharing on social media is also a huge help along with giving us a five-star review on Apple iTunes. As a small production, these things matter a lot. So if you can take a little time, share out some of your favorite quotes from this episode and tag us, that would be amazing. We're at boss barista podcast on Instagram and boss underscore barista on Twitter. You can also send me an email at bossbaristapodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.